And then if people join, they join and let's get going. <clears throat> um, so the couple of things I wanted to mention before we, uh, well, first of all, we have a special guest, Craig Belzer from Bards Brewing, who we're going to talk to in a little bit. Thanks for joining, Craig. Um, that's Thank awesome. Um, for uh, the home, home brew club, club stuff before we get started. So I think uh, Stuart had posted that there's now 1,300 mem members on the Facebook group, which is awesome. 1,300 mem members. So cheers to that. There you go. Brian, Brian's got it going on. I don't. I got to grab one. <laughs> um the club t-shirts this is a version of what the shirt's gonna look like this is different colors and ink because i decided i didn't like this um this version that i got done off etsy so we went a different direction but um i have an order place for 24 shirts uh 22 are taken two are left for grabs i forget the sizes i think it's a large and an extra large um so those shirts are going to be um, in my possession usually may, probably in about a week and a half. And then I'll get with those folks to get those shipped out. Um, those shirts are meant to be kind of a way to raise money for the club for things like uh, Stuart's. Uh, I say Stuart, he's involved, he does the wiki. There's wiki fees. There's fees for Zoom, you know, this and that. And then hopefully whenever this pandemic is over we can do things like have a big club party um and i don't know if there's any other ideas that people have but uh that's kind of what it was meant for right um not just a blatant cash grab right um so uh, the other thing that i just started was a podcast uh version uh because uh, ben fowler had mentioned that it would be cool to have podcasts of kind of some of the stuff that we're doing so um I put up a bunch of the interviews that were done that are on YouTube. Those are now on podcast. Um, you can get them on Podbean, on Spotify, and soon to be Apple Podcasts. Um, the latest interview that I did with Jesse Bufton is also up on YouTube and on podcast, which is great from Groundbreaker. He's awesome. Totally watch that. Um, my collaboration beer with Ghostfish is scheduled to be released on Tuesday, Groundhog's Day, taproom oh, exclusive cool. only. Uh, it's uh, super, I'm super excited about that as well. So this Tuesday, that's supposed to be released. So if you're in Seattle and you can go down uh, and grab yourself a growler um, or sit outside one of their tables, uh, definitely go do that and say that you love it. No. <laughs> um we Reed and I brewed that batch back in the middle of December, and so it's been kind of sitting around lagering for a while. So hopefully, it tastes delicious. Um, I don't know. Anyone else? Uh, oh, Derek actually had a, um, a really cool couple of ideas about um, maybe uh, different meeting ideas. I don't know. You threw those out via email. I don't know if you want to talk about those briefly. I thought there was a couple of good ideas that we could kind of maybe roll with with future meetings. Why don't you? Sure. The, the quick version was one of them was um, kind of like a uh, office hours version for new brewers to like come and ask um, sort of hand-holding questions because I feel like most new brewers ask the same like 15 questions and um, some some brewers might appreciate, uh, some new brewers might appreciate it just to get people like into the club sort of thing. Um, and then the other one was 
less of a like formal meeting and more because we did the New Year's social hour and that was kind of neat. And I thought maybe like more of a social hour or a what are you brewing? Maybe a few people could present if they're doing something uh, interesting or maybe they like really lock down their process and they want to share about it, something like that. That'd be cool. Yeah, yeah totally. I mean, I... I take an, I, I have, there's another Facebook group that's really big that is uh, Milk the Funk and they have like 30,000 members and they, I, the thing I don't like about that is that if you don't follow the rules, right? Like if you ask the question that's been asked like a hundred times, then they're like, screw you, you know, you, we don't want to be kind of like that. So I, I think that's a good idea to have, you know, a resource, um, for new brewers and or just a social way to talk about it yeah i think that's a great idea yeah that would be cool because i know it helps me to bounce ideas back and forth off someone just to you know dial something in or where did i go wrong and you know it's it's more productive if it's a conversation than i post something and you know two or three people might say something and Yeah, let me hang on just a second. Let me send. I think I guess I gotta send the passcode to Kim. She says she can't get in, so hang on just a second. Yeah, no, the the original idea I had was for like straight up new brewers. So I know when I first got into this um, a long time ago, it was so difficult to like find stuff, and I can't imagine how many mistakes I made that if I would have just gotten to ask somebody. But the other side is Brian. That'd be cool too to have a time to like, cause Facebook posts are so laggy, right? Like you, yeah. ask, you get his response and you respond where something like this, like, and then people can throw out their suggestions and maybe you can try it or not. Um, that's a good idea too. All right. Like right now, my next big learning curve is uh, water chemistry. And, you know, I mean, it's just one of those things where it's like, I start to think about it and then I get a headache. <laughs> I'm like, no. Yeah. Oh man. I got like, I did the, I did the, um, send in your water sample to ward labs thing. And then yeah. they came back and gave you, and then you loaded in. But some of the stuff is just like, after like some of the, if I don't really want to get into it, I'm just like, screw it. I'm just going to brew whatever. I don't want to overcomplicate it. Sometimes I want to get super complicated and be like, I'm going to put it into this fancy calculator and, adjust it with these different uh <laughs> salts and whatever but it is a little bit overwhelming right Definitely. yeah well for a long time i was just getting buying spring water because it already has you know some minerals to it so i'm like oh, you know it's sort of the the easy way and now i'm brewing more frequently so like dude, that's you know what eight nine dollars on a batch of beer that I can save yeah. by using tap water. I got a profile from um, one of the local homebrew, uh, a member of my local homebrew club. And, you know, I mean, they say that our water is pretty consistent. I mean, we basically have Detroit city water, um, which I think they pull from the Great Lakes. You know, so, I mean, it's pretty consistent. It's just kind of like, God, you know, one more thing to do. Yeah, just as long as it's not the Flint water. Yeah, just avoid that. Yeah, no, no Flint water. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, 
yeah so i do like heavy metal i mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly but not in my beer so we'll try to see i i don't know what the frequency of meetings like that is or maybe if it's just like um maybe every couple months or i guess we can gauge interest and see what what that looks like i think next month i am thinking of just having it maybe with some more social like bring your own recipe like to kind of throw out ideas within the club members right so uh, we could definitely do just so you don't get overwhelmed you could do like a almost like a sign up like we got five spots for next month's like share your beer yeah yeah uh, who wants to share their beer and then everybody that signed up gets like five to ten minutes to talk about it if there's questions that way you don't have to try and get like you know yeah that's a good idea 20 people in one hour like not happening yeah Yeah, that's a good idea gonna ask you kale uh the the link on the facebook page um as you probably just were aware it asked for the passcode but there is no passcode in the facebook link that i could see what's up with that come on well, I like to make it really challenging for people. Yeah, I just went to my email you sent me. That it's like an exclusive well done, club Kale. thing. <laughs> I don't know if it's the same one every time or not, but... Uh, I'll have to work on that next time. Well, they, they can just watch the recording, so uh, go. we got to move on. So That's why we, we could have had 30 more people. <laughs> next time. It's a very exclusive club, right? So um, anyway, so Craig Belzer, Bard's Brewing... Thank you for joining us. Um, so why don't we just, uh, so I think the kind of the, the one of the big focuses of this conversation was because Brian had uh, engaged you and I guess was working with you on the sorghum malt, which is something you use, but w- can you just give us like uh, an overview of Barge Brewing and kind of the, the nuts and bolts and how you got started? All right. Um, started in 2003. Um, there was not any, there was no gluten-free beer on the market, uh, started in the garage with, you know, we're down here in Kansas city. So I did what pretty much every one of you guys did, which was <laughs> started finding some grains, malting them. Well, my first batch of beer that I ever produced was on homemade malt. Okay. So I learned how to malt it and, and brew it. Being in Kansas City, I tried corn and sorghum and just about every grain that there, there was and, and stumbled across sorghum. Uh, we actually stumbled across a great case, the accidentally stumbled across a cultivar of sorghum that doesn't give the sorghum twang, if, if you know what I'm talking about. And I ended up producing a beer that was indistinguishable from regular beer when it was malted. Um, I was able to make pilsners and it, it has weird reaction to hops, different kinds of hops and everything to that effect. Um, but long story short, ran into a business partner in 2000, God, I think it was four or five. Sorry. We ended up producing our first beer in upstate New York at the Flying Bison Brewery um, under contract. And we were the first gluten-free beer ever produced. So we, we ended up being the first right after that lakefront came out and a, a few of the other ones like new planet, um, came out and, uh, we took off. We were in nine States in a couple of months, uh, fairly quickly. We're national and in Canada. Um, I got too big for me. I turned it over the, the ex CEO of Pabst, uh, brewing had retired by a guy by the name of Brian Kovalchuk. And then I ended up having handing, handing over operations to him for the last uh, up through 2017 when we took it back when he retired <laughs> a second time. Uh, so we've been making a 100% sorghum malt based beer 
for the basic four ingredients, which is the hops, water, salt, and yeast, or excuse me, sorghum and yeast. Um, done a lot of research. I mean, terabytes at this point of research. We've gotten grants from the USDA to evaluate every cultivar of uh, sorghum that grows in the United States or North America for a seven-year period. Um, came back and found out that there's very few cultivars of sorghum that don't have that twang that you guys probably, if you've ever tried the breeze, uh, unmalted sorghum, you kind of eat that back. I, ca I call it a kind of a school paste tang uh, to me. And that's what we've been doing. In the last two years, I've been working at turning the sorghum, everything that we know about sorghum into what I call an open source project. Um, we're not trying to keep this stuff close to the chest. I'm trying to get out there and, and let people know how to brew with sorghum how to do gluten-free with the enzyme protocol that we end up using. Um, you know, just basically want people to get sorghum, get it in their hands. It's, it's probably the best brewing ingredient. I've tried, I've tried the millets, I've tried the rices, and I've tried a lot of the other ones. This one, when properly done, in, again, my opinion, um, is probably the best sorghum, best brewing ingredient uh, that I get my hands on. It's the closest to real beer, but cultivar is everything. You know, that, that there is a definitive, very bad taste to sorghum. So that's where we're at. We're currently in almost all of the U.S., except your guys' neck of the woods, Washington, California, and Oregon. Uh, we were in California for, for years. 2016, we dropped because we're, we were producing on the East Coast and shipping it was too expensive. Uh, we since... Uh, engaged a pair of breweries, one for the, for Canada, um, that does the brews for all of Canada. We do our brewing under contract. Okay. Um, and we have one in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, the O'Fallon brewing. We do contract brewing, but we, we do everything from scratch. So we, we have people grow the grain for us. We put it in a dedicated silo. We independently test to make sure that it's, it's, uh, gluten-free before it goes to the malter. We have the malting. We make sure that it's gluten-free coming out of the malt house. We send it to the brewer. We have, you know, all the protocols in place to brew and make sure that we're 100% gluten-free. And the entire time that we've brewed beer, we've never had anybody get sick from gluten off of our beer because, you know, being kind of retentive, uh, there's the five parts per million rule. If I detect any gluten, it doesn't go out the door. So that's, that was basically it. So uh, we are working on our actual, we've been doing one style of beer forever, just because my uh, ex-CEO was kind of unimaginative. So I've been working on quite a few beers um, since then, and we've come up with a, a really good methodology. Uh, the beer, go ahead. Are you, so, um, and Brian had helped me with some questions and feel free to jump in, Brian, if you want to, but, but so okay. for, for the, the, the malted sorghum, are you, so is there, where, where do you guys malt that? And are you looking at other different varieties of like darker roasts and things like that? Oh, um, absolutely. So the first thing we do is we've got you just your, your, what I call a pale roast. You know, it's, it's about the same thing as a pale malt. We are also roasting down into a Munich variety. Um, a lot of what we do, we've done chocolate, 
um, on a limited run. We haven't done a production run of that yet. We keep doing like a couple of hundred pounds at a time for testing, but we haven't run the uh, big batches yet. The, the chocolate malt that comes out of sorghum is very interesting. It's got, uh, if you're familiar with Shiraz wine, it's kind of a peppery taste on it. Uh, that's really, really interesting. I really, really like it. Um, I've prototyped a beer out of it that came really close to uh, Shiner's Black Lager, if you've ever tried one before. So, yeah, I've been working on that. Crystal, uh, after years of research and help with the USDA, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that a, a good crystal coming out of any gluten-free malt because of the gelatinization issues uh, is pretty much impossible You've got a couple of good ones out of millet coming out of grouse um, that are pretty good, but getting really good caramelization on those things is kind of rough. Uh, getting dextrins into the beer can be done by varying the enzyme uh, protocols. Um, we, even though we're made out of malt, we use 100% enzymes. We don't try, we've, we, the enzymes aren't sufficient in any of the grains to make a naturally occurring beer, in my opinion. So, uh, yes, we've got all kinds of mold. Um, those are, those are going to be coming out. Go ahead. You keep using the word uh, cultivar, I think. What does that mean? Oh, sorry. Um, first things first. Uh, you eat apples. You got Granny Smith's, Jonathan's, um, Pink Ladies. They all have vastly different taste characteristics. Each of those is a cultivar. So what ends up happening is we have a grain cultivar, and I, you, there's no way you can see this, but that is crappy. It's a red sorghum that we end up using now that has really, really good flavor to it. Um, for years, we used a white sorghum. This is the second cultivar. This We got about a 20% flavor increase out of this more beer-like consistency. It tasted better than the one we used for well, 15 years. And so we just swapped that in 2017. So cultivars are everything in all of these grains. And what I mean is, is barley, it's not even a thought for the people on barley because for 500 years, they've been breeding barley to make beer. And we've been working on, you know, you get people that are, that are uh, malting grains, but they're just pulling a grain out of an elevator somewhere. They're just going to go buy sorghum. Um, when you do that, a, uh, an elevator, they don't pay attention to germination. They don't pay attention to whether it's got vomitoxins or alpha toxins or any of these good or bad things in them. Um, and they kind of all mix, mix them together. So if you try to make an apple pie and you threw 15 kinds of apples in it, it's really not going to taste as distinct as what you can get out of the rest of them. So cultivar is everything, specifically everything on any of these. And I think you know, grouse on the millet side of the world. And even I think it's Eckhart Malting's got the rice malt. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. And he's, he's doing a pretty good job too. So, you know, cultivar to begin with, if you don't get it, sorghum, and I don't want to get into too many details because I don't want to do this. Sorghum itself, if you get the wrong cultivar, um, can form a protein matrices around the starch. So all of a sudden you'll try and brew with it and you'll get, uh, you'll get next to no uh, extract out of it without boiling the hell out of it. 
breaking those proteins down. So protein enzymes as a precursor are pretty important. And again, I'm going off the deep end. Uh, is is um is the sorghum grain that you get is that local to you in Kansas City area or where do you get that? And then second question on top of that is that sorghum grain um is it primarily produced for you guys or for breeze or for what is the primary use of sorghum like growing in the u.s to begin with okay so sorghum is the fourth leading cereal crop in the u.s it's it's a lot bigger i mean it's just a lot of cows eat it okay so (laughs) no i mean literally put you've seen it a million times it's uh you know everybody goes hey you making that cow food beer i love that one um but it's the fourth, it's the fourth leading uh, uh, cereal crop in the U.S. and it's it, it's called Milo or sorghum, either one of those, depending on what region of the country you're in. In Africa, they do all kinds of of, of uh, sorghum. I was talking to John Taylor in Africa; that he's the one that that's the uh, guy that does it down there. Different kind of brewing for a different kind of beer. They make Bantu beer, which is a crushed beer porridge. But anyway. Um, too many tangents on that in what was the question again sorry <laughs> oh, does does the grain you get it was it produced locally in the kansas city area and, and... Uh, no this is the one one that we ended up doing we actually working with the seed breeder to improve the quality of this thing so we've got a gentleman in texas that's uh, helping us he's one of the preeminent uh sorghum breeders so we work in conjunction with that and the information we get from the USDA to constantly every year look at new cultivars and, you know, evaluate them. And then the, the, our seed breeder will make, you know, higher protein, lower. Right now we're struggling with low pro, lower protein on this. Um, and we just, this, this current batch, we got an up another 2% right, right within spec. Uh, so he grows it. Um, he sells it to everybody else. He sells it to a lot of other people because it's a very well-performing seed. So it's grown in Kansas, Nebraska, um, Colorado, Texas, and parts of Missouri. You have to watch where you grow it uh, because if you grow it in certain parts, the the sorghum has a little cup-like husk that the seed fits in. If you get late season moisture on this stuff, all of a sudden mold starts growing all over the place. And if you put and since sorghum, like millet, has to be germinated in like a mid-70s uh, Fahrenheit, that's just a giant Petri dish. You'll end up getting just, well, alpha vomitoxins, which is things that are poisonous to humans. So you basically, we get it in the drier climates. Western Kansas, southern Nebraska, northern Texas. Uh, we skip Oklahoma for some reason and even in missouri where i'm at it's the northwest corner that you can grow it in everything else gets a little bit too uh uh funky so that's that's it yeah it grows all over the place if you ever need to get a hold of some i've got five billion silos of the stuff i know where it's all at so there you go that's in in general i the only thing that i ever protect is the um, the name of what that cultivar is and what it is, because, you know, I'll, I'll sell it to anybody in the world, but that intellectual property and the amount of money we invest in that 
is really the only thing that's that's uh, keeps Brees from stealing it and running with run it with running with it. Or, but they wouldn't do that. I'm I'm giving that as an example. You know? So you're saying you're the sorghum kingpin, then, right? Nice. <laughs> no, I'm the sorghum kingpin. I love it. Now, <laughs> any other questions for Craig? I got a bunch of other questions, but I don't want to hog the. Yeah, I gotta, how how could we get some? If you're saying that your sorghum like makes a world of difference, how could we as homebrewers get get our hands on some? Because we sorghum yeah. or the you want the sorghum or the sorghum malt? I mean, personally, I want your beer, but you're not shipping to Hawaii, so I'm uh, going with this whatever we would use in brewing, right? So the sorghum malt, yeah. Well, two things. Uh, sorghum malt, um, I'm shipping a bunch of it up to Brian. So wave at Brian. He's he's going to um, – he's got a couple of bags at it, but I'm going to set him a, a bunch of the new stuff that I've, I've more aggressively roasted. Uh, but I've also – go ahead. That's not gluten-free home brewing, Brian, though, right? No, no. Brian, Brian Newcomb. No. So, Brian, tell Brian them about your operation. There, there's two of us, and we both do – or it's both kind of the same thing. Um He's talking about me with uh, gluten-free brew supply. You can buy the sorghum malt that... Nice. Can you see that? <clears throat> and then here's it with after I crushed it. Wait, both, Bri both Brian's have gluten-free home brewing yeah. stores. Yes. <laughs> That's, it's not confusing at all. Change your name. <laughs> One of you is now. I, I know, but then we have to fight over it. So it's like, who has the patent on the name Brian? Is well, it who was into gluten-free beer first or who was, who's older? And Brian. What's the name of your shop? <laughs> gluten-free, oh my God. Gluten-freebrewsupply.com. So, right, no, it's gfbsupply.com. You got to get this. And the name out. is Gluten Free Brew Supply. And you're in, where are you at, Brian? So I'm in Detroit. And so you'd be shipping it out from Detroit to like Hawaii for you, Derek, in that instance, right? Yeah. So it'd probably be a flat rate box. Um, I think those are good to Hawaii. And I think I, they're like 75 for a 20 pound. Uh, keep the name brian if you can't get the website right because that wasn't the website <laughs> gfbsupply.com gfb and while he's looking that up craig so and brian so i'm i'm on so i'm tracking craig you're gonna you're gonna be like you're gonna sell it wholesale to brian and he has a storefront that sells it to retail customers is that kind of what, what you're not selling direct to customer cost retail retail wholesale? yeah right now i'm i'm not equipped to do any kind of retail sales i mean we buy ours by the truckload yeah and so what I'm doing is I'm kind of outsourcing it. Give it to Brian, let him take care of it for, a for, for now. And let's see how well you guys like it. Um, but I even got the easier one than that. One of the other things I'm shipping up to him is, is because of the way our brewing process goes, our beer. So I've got the malt. Um, we don't use the malt to produce our end product. We actually take our malt and ship it up and have it made into extract. So we do big 3,000 pound totes of extract. Why do you ask? Because the biggest contamination component in all these breweries is the mill and most yeah. of the mill. And you can't do anything about the mill and the auger. 
you can you can clean and wash with acid all of the brewing equipment in the boil kettle, but you can't guarantee them. So that's a contamination point constantly. In addition to that, because of the brewing protocols, you have to basically almost boil this stuff. You guys know that. Um, there's not a lot of production breweries that can do that. We ran into problems. We produced some at left hand uh, brewing. Uh, they had problems getting the, the uh, grain going through their spent grain capacity because sorghum has a different density. So there's a lot of issues unless you build a brewery from the ground up um, to be made for sorghum. There's a lot of brewing issues. The easy button is have somebody produce it for you in big 3,000 pound totes or, you know, you've seen these guys before. Yep. So we have sorghum malt extract as well. It's 100% malt, it's extract. And then we end up using that because it's a hell of a lot easier to just pour it in. You know, it's the old fashioned beer. So I'm going to make both of them available through Brian. Um, as far as that goes, it, I'm, I'm trying to get it from a 3,000 pound tote into this in sufficient quantities without doing it myself. So <laughs> there's a little bit of a delay on that. And then what we do is, is quite frankly, uh, started doing a, what I, what I, everybody used the tea bag method on, on, on brewing. So if I, that black lager that I produced, I use most of my fermentables off of that, off of that extract. And then what I did is I took all the specialty malts, threw them in a, a, a very oversized rice cooker that I had, uh, cooked, cooked them all, and then put, put those into the, the uh, kettle in a, in a brew in a bag. And then basically went through an enzyme protocol, just an, enough enzymes to extract what I needed to out of those guys. And there you go. So, you know, we've got a lot, but the extract itself is, is one of the best bases in the world for just about anything. Cause you really get that extract that we do. We do a little bit of over modification, uh, not, not a little bit, but enough to really get that malt punch into the, into the grain. So is, is, I'm curious because um, there's the breeze white sorghum syrup, which I think it's a reputation, like you said, with metallic twangy, like, like basically all the gluten-free home brewers that I know that are really nerdy and into it want to do have move away from that as fast as possible. Right. So, oh, yeah. and so, but it sounds like you have this other product, which is like um, completely different, different flavor profile, um, is it going to be, is it, would it price out something similar to like a can of um, white sorghum syrup from Brees? And I have no idea because I haven't bought, a, bought one okay. from uh, Brees in a long time. Uh, $9. Yeah, like 10 bucks <laughs> or something like that, I yeah. think. Yeah, our goal was to keep it, or my goal is to keep it, it'll be a little bit more. I mean, it is a more expensive product. That's but fair. reasonably more, you know, so it's not going to be like twice as much. We're talking like, so instead of like my local homebrew shop sells the brie syrup for, I think it's like, say $12. We might be at $14, $15. Um, I've had, you know, he had sent me up a couple of sample bottles. Um, it's definitely a lot cleaner different profile than the uh the breeze 
malt or breeze extract. Um, it's just, you know, there's like he was kind of describing, you have to take it from a giant tote down to these little 3.3 pound bottles that, you know, I can sell. And that's just a materials handling issue, packaging, you know, a lot of complications there. Um, the first batch I did with the malt, I didn't hit my gravity numbers because I was just, you know, kind of doing the, the old uh, enzyme protocol. And I just used uh, two pounds of that to bring it up to gravity. And I shared a bottle of that and then a bottle that was, um, or, you know, the next beer I made was a hundred percent sorghum malt, you know, all grain. And a couple of people I gave it to her couldn't tell the difference. That, 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 that right there is the, the kicker, not being able to tell the difference. Cause that was yeah. before going into business. If you can tell the difference between this and regular beer, you're right. And there like, are yeah. they're regular beer drinkers. Um, one is the president of my homebrew, you know, local homebrew club, and his girlfriend is uh, celiac. So that's how we're, you know, friends. And he came over and had uh, the three beers that I've made with this. And also one of the guys at the homebrew shop, um, he tried two of them and he described them you know all the things that came from the malt the same and then you know the only difference that he identified was that one was uh citra hopped and the other one was um centennial so for and he preferred the citra sorry go ahead so for, for the sorghum malt i'm gonna call it barred sorghum just to distinguish yeah bar barred sorghum malt Large sorghum malt. You would still need enzymes to brew with that, I would assume. Right, right. With this, with a, but, to do all grain. But with um, the sorghum syrup from the Bard's malt, you would not need enzymes like the regular sorghum right. syrup. Right. So the, this is actual LME, you know, because so what you get from Brees isn't, you know, M is standing for malted. So, you know, they, they just, there's a sorghum syrup. This is sorghum malt extract. And so that one, you don't need any enzymes for at all. Uh, you could use it just to, you know, as like your, your base for, you know, kind of like um, how a lot of times, like when you first get, start going to grain, you go with a, a partial mash or the, Partial like grain. um yeah the partial grain you could use it that way you could use it as a hundred percent of your fermentables um you could keep some on hand just for that well shit i missed my gravity i'm gonna pour some in until you know i add two pounds so i can gain my 20 or 25 points whatever you need to get to your target Brian, you're gonna have to come up with like a marketing slogan for it. You can call or Brian and Craig. You gotta call it like twang free sorghum syrup or something like that. <laughs> well, the, the thing I'm not I'm gonna do is make absolutely sure that I don't call it sorghum syrup. Cause yeah. here's the thing. When I talked about cultivar, 
the the cultivar of sorghum Brees just is buying commodity sorghum now their sorghum extract is absolutely wonderful for what it is but it doesn't take you know they don't know the cultivar components so they're they're buying it and it doesn't have any malt punch so you're going to get the twang it's well brewed as far as that's concerned but um you know without that malt punch you just don't you don't you don't get it you know that that to me was the was the part that and kind of like brian said everything i do anymore i don't do the big batches in my when i'm testing i don't do the big batches from all grain i use ex, I, I use at least 80 percent extract and then i just whatever specialty grains that i'm throwing in you know go so, through the enzyme protocol with them nice so before I uh, started using the millet and rice recently last year, I was using um, the breeze syrup as well as uh, tapioca syrup as fermentables. Right. And I was able to get those in the five gallon pails and I would, would strongly encourage you guys to think about doing some of that. So if there's some folks like out in Oregon or something uh, doing this that we could maybe go together and order a five gallon pail and then you know, split it up and have a bunch of people brew because I found those little containers are really cost prohibitive, particularly when, you know, it's all weight. Yeah, we could do that. Just buy the tote from them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, buy, buy 3,000 pounds. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, we, we do actually have uh, a bunch of buckets right now that I'm going to be sending a couple of them up to Brian. What's the, speaking of that, I mean, what's the, um, I see sor breeze sorghum syrup on the shelf at homebrew stores. Like my local homebrew store has sorghum syrup. It's like the only one of the only gluten-free things that they have, right? Uh, besides right. The hops and things like that. But, and I'm sure that those things sit on that shelf forever, right? And, um, and I don't know what the shelf life, what, what kind of shelf life would you expect to have for um, something like this new malt syrup? If you're, if you're taking it and you put it down and you're in a cool place, you know, it's just like anything else. If you leave it in your hot garage over the summer, yeah, well, you're going to, you're, you're going to uh, have, an, have an effect on it. If you keep it down in your basement, I've had some that's been down there for a couple of years because extract doesn't get that bad. Now I am not a super taster like everybody else. So the people that make it for us are basically saying, they'll say a year easily. Um, but you could go longer than a year, big time. Uh, I, I, I literally can't I, when it gets to the four or five year point, cause I'll go through and go back and try our periodic taste samples. I keep a library of every batch we've ever made. Um, and I'll go back and test one of them. about four or five years. It starts getting really dark and caramely and you start getting uh, what I call a molasses caramel taste to it that comes through on the beer, um, which actually is kind of <laughs> nice for different styles of beer, but no, you've got a couple of years on it if you keep it in a, a nice, cool place. Okay. Anyone else got questions? I got more questions. Kim, questions? Eric, no, Peter. <laughs> Um, I got a question about, you, it sounds like you started like way, way long time ago in 2003 where there was like nothing gluten-free. So you had to malt your own grains and do all this crazy stuff. And then 
you took this did you take this like super long hiatus and decide you wanted to buy your baby back or start it up again what what happened tell us what oh. happened craig oh well so so i am a programmer of computers by nature um an analyst and this was an analytical problem the doctor said you can't have any beer that's a damn big problem and at the time there was no options okay um so again, sitting down and, and, and doing this thing, uh, I'm also not, I've been the CEO of this company three times now, and I don't enjoy being the CEO of a company. I, I, I focus on one problem. Let me go brew all day long and play with it and do the technicals and find the next recipe. And I'll break down starch chemistry and enzyme chemistry. That's the fun stuff. Uh, figuring out whether Bob turned his timesheet in is not. So the, what happened to me is I ran it for a couple of years. It got way bigger than me. I let uh, the um, CEO, again, again, Brian Kovalchuk, he took it over when he retired from Pabst. Um, he ran it and it was great. He just called me up when he needed technical stuff and he ran it, but he decided to retire. So when he decided to retire, he said, well, you know, you know you're going to take it back. Yep. I, I took it back and and we changed quite a bit. We moved the malting around and got the logistics down and improved cultivars. That's kind of what I was focusing on. And even now, I just stepped down six months ago as CEO. I'm still the president of the company, but I handed the CEO over to a new person that I trained up for the last two years to run the business side of it. Um, so that I could just basically concentrate on this because it is my intention to take this uh, and make it available, make the sorghum malt and what we know available. And that's kind of what I'm doing here. You, you're the first people, I think, besides Brian, that I've, I've publicly started talking about us getting sorghum malt and the sorghum malt extract out. Uh, it, in again, my opinion is a superior product. It's one of the best brewing products um, for gluten-free that I know of. That's why I've stuck to a, stuck with it all these years. I just want to make sure that everybody can get their hands on it because it'd be really nice. I'm not doing that from a uh, get-rich-quick scheme or anything to that effect, but I want to move the science of gluten-free brewing forward quite a bit. Um, and I, I know that people... Apply it to uh, commercial brewers as well as home brewers? Oh, absolutely. That's, that's the whole idea. Uh, the idea is we're going to start... Uh, supplying sorghum malt, sorghum malt extract to these people and make, you know, this is not our primary business. We make the Bard's beer brand, uh, but you get more people who I've been doing the science on this with a half dozen universities and a, and a couple of, of uh, USDA folks. And if we start getting that out in the hands, I think the, the breadth of knowledge is going to increase quite a bit and that's kind of what we're trying to do yeah. because I, you're starting to see a lot more since since you guys started picking it up you're starting to be a lot more chatter which means a lot more ideas getting thrown around and they're getting captured and people are building on top of them, and that's kind of how you get great beer i think uh it's also it's a lot more cost uh, effective using a, a malt extract than uh, all grain if you're in commercial brewing as well so you know, uh, it, it, there's a lot of people. I, I got to tell you, all honesty, right next door to this office downstairs is a brew pub, and they make a little tiny brew pub, and a and it's in a one barrel system. 
And they went through, I got to do what with this grain? And I got to do, how am I going to heat that up? And how do I keep it clean? And I handed him a five gallon bucket of this stuff and said, here, pour this in your, uh, pour this in your boil kettle, add some hops and, and you're good. And that, that, that was relatively easy for them. There's a lot of people out there on the extract side that don't, they just don't want to mess with it. And even me personally, I've got, I've got more brewing systems. My attic looks like a, a homebrew supply shop because I've had to go through every piece of, of commercial software. And now I'm down to like, like I think there's a robo brewer grain father. I can't remember the brand. It's like that one you have behind you, you know, um, and I use the brew in the bag because I put my specialty malts in there and I'll go through a full enzymatic conversion on just those to get all the flavors and pull everything out. And then everything else is just me pouring extract in the boil kettle. Yeah. yeah. If you're That's brewing easy. with, um, if you're brewing with the, um, the grains that I think Brian was going to be, um, that is currently selling instead of the extract, mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if you or Brian can answer this question, but what sort of, uh, what's the preferred mash schedules on that? And what is, um, what sort of enzymes, exogenous enzymes would you want to add to, to increase your fermentability? Uh, well, fermentability. Um, hmm. Okay. There's two main. I'm going to say I've hit like 95% uh, apparent attenuation on all three yeah. that I've made. So you, yeah. Okay. So well, how do you, how do you, well, I guess maybe more so like, how do you get the starches to convert to sugars uh, in the grain? Like, Oh, okay. Well, let's do it the easy way. hundred percent enzymes. We'll start with two brew. There's two brewing protocols. There's uh, the step down one, uh, which is what I use for the specialty grains. You, everybody knows that boil it 190 degrees on the grain. Um, I'm using I I gotta, I gotta look over here cause I gotta, on my other monitor, I'm, I'm cheating. Um, the Thermomil SCDS. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thermomil is the high temperature it is, I've tried absolutely every high temperature one, Thermomil's it. I mean, it's just easy. It's there, you boil it, it it's good to go. Um, we do that and we use a, a nutrase, a protein enzyme, a protein degrading enzyme. So we start out, and again, I'm, I'm gonna throw you up here. Oh, sorry, I was talking about the step down. Damn it. My apologies, P. <laughs> I don't know if you all can see this but that was uh this is the first batch i made with centennial fresh out of a bottle nice. i absolutely love that mug by the way <laughs> thanks and the head formation yeah this looks good so the step down one put all the put all the grains in at 190 degrees put in some thermomill hold it for 60 minutes Right, you're gonna drop it down. You gotta the pH needs to be between 5.5, 5.6 with 100, 100 to 150 parts per million of calcium. Okay, calcium is what drives some of these enzymes to work really well. So your water chemistry on these things is pretty important. Um, you need to reduce chlorine and sulfates. Same same component. Um, so you're gonna keep this in at 190 degrees. That's gonna get your gelatinization and your liquefaction. Drop it down to 145 degrees. 
again, if you're doing the Odea Pro uh, enzyme mix, if you're, it's a way of cheating. That was designed more for barley. So I think, Brian, you're using a Ceramix, aren't you? I'm using Ceramix and Ondea and ter Termomil. Okay. And that got me, uh, I did like, I started low, I went high, went back down low, and I got 92% mash efficiency. Um, my anvil only boils off a little. I did like a half hour boil, so I got 95% um, brew house. I ended up with 8.1% 8 .1 ABV. Finishing gravity was like uh, 1.002, and the starting was 1.065. And so, if I remember and, correctly, off the top of my head. So the the Odea, the problem with the Odea is, I believe that it's got a bacterial uh, en enzyme in it, a bacterial alpha. Um. So for a while, I was using a, what they call an amylase AG300L, which is a bacteriological. This is what I was talking to Brian about. Um, there's two kinds of these lower temperature alpha amylase. One of them is a bacteriological. One is a fungal. The bacteriological, pardon me, is going to chew through all of your starch and convert everything to sugar, and it's going to get glucose all over the place. You're not going to, you're, the longer you leave it in, it'll just, it'll just keep chewing and chewing and chewing until you have rocket fuel beer. Okay, so I've switched over to, yeah, Fungamil. Uh, uh, it's, an, it's a uh, Fungamil 800L, um, which is a fungal alpha amylase, and the beautiful thing behind that is you put that in at the a little bit lower temperature at 132 degrees and that thing will it'll create create predominantly malto uh yeah maltose and uh, i'm pulling a blank on the other one but your sugar profile will be just perfect but again going back to kale's uh question is we do a step down where we start at a high temperature, gelatinize, drop it down to 145. That's one way of doing it. And that's how I do it from a specialty perspective. Um, I've sent up to uh, Brian and I'm happy to share that enzyme protocol, the whole nine yards with everybody here. That's not a, that's not a secret. And so I'll get the notes out to him and Brian, if you would, you got the email list. Yeah. Okay. Um, the all grain method that I end up utilizing in the breweries that we have used where we did all grain is completely different. It, you, you start out at 122 degrees, you again adjust for calcium, you get a pH at about 6.0, you throw the thermal mill and the new trays in. Um, you're gonna be 2.6 liters per kilogram ratio grain wise. So it's, it's kind of there. You're going to rest there for 30 minutes. You're going to take it up to 155 degrees. You're going to leave it there for 20 minutes. Um, hold on a second. That gonna, that's going to help gelatinization and thinning in a professional brewery more than anything else. The stir paddle will start dying if you don't give it the rest at this particular uh, 
uh, stage. We ramped up to 190 degrees at one degree a minute um, through the rest of gelatinization and we hold it there for 45 minutes. Now this is a long brew, okay? Um, we add enough cold water to knock it back to 132 degrees. We adjust the pH for the fungal alpha amylase, which knocks it down to 5.2. And then we are, and we add a little bit more thermomill and we hold it at 132 for 45 minutes. And the last thing we do is we raise it back to 180 for 10 minutes, check conversion, and we're ready to go. Now, that is a pain for a home brewer, but enzymatically, that is how you get a really, really good beer. So. It's gotta be a, that's a pain for a commercial brewery, isn't it? Oh, no, it is. You're absolutely right. But I mean, the thing yeah. is, is, wow. It's fun that this group is here, and and that's why I say the step mash that we found somebody that does that for us, okay, and that's why we're doing extract because getting a brewer to do that, I'm I'm what we do is we send two truckloads of grain up and turn it into about two and a half truckloads of malt extract, about sixty seventy thousand pounds of the stuff, and we throw it in a warehouse and then they just take these bags up and pour it in and and you're good. But the extract's the way to go. But the thing here is, is any of the shortcuts, um, you're either going to end up with processing problems or you're going to have beer that doesn't taste as good as it could be. So gluten-free beer is a pain. I've been working on shortening this for a long time, and that is shorter than it was before. Um, it, it, it gets significantly easier if you have a, a uh, cereal cooker in the first place but I haven't run across a single brewer yet that had one other than up at your neck of the woods. There's guys that have mash filters. Um, yeah. I'll really brew Detroit yeah. has a mash filter and that's completely different from laudering. They just powder it up and put it in an accordion looking thing and squeeze Glutenberg. all the stuff out of it. Glutenberg does that. Yeah. yeah Glutenberg is Quebec. Yes, that's right. So, yeah. From that perspective, that gets you that gets you a really good beer. And again, you can simplify some of that stuff, but it's just really your ability to gelatinize is is really it. We are all gluttons for punishment as gluten free brewers, so we <laughs> we already know all about um, spending all day in our basements or our garages or out in the snow. <laughs> <laughs> wherever it may be right yeah i was i was, I was yeah or your kitchen <laughs> that profile doesn't go too badly with uh like with my anvil um you know i mean i can set my uh power to like 50 percent, and it'll just kind of slowly come up mash in at 125 pitch all three enzymes you know, let it rise up and, you know, I, while it's doing that, I'm off taking a nap or doing whatever, you know, to set an alarm for a few hours later, come back, kick it up to 190, set it for an hour, come back, turn it off. So it goes back down, let it just go slowly down. And then I pitched the uh, Andia and Ceramics and let it sit for a bit. Um and that's when I got the 92% mash efficiency. I mean, I think 
based on the uh, small scale I did on my stovetop, that like the falling mash he described will work great. Especially if you're using it as a your base grain and then adding in you know, like the millets and the rices for the, you know, as your specialties, just cook your couple pounds of uh, sorghum, you know, kind of do like the mashies that, you know, bring it down and then do your normal rising mash if that's what you do. Should be right in there. The one cheat that you can do that that I've got, I went to a, uh, uh, we have a Chinese equipment store uh, down the road from us and they sell commercial quality rice cookers. Um, so if you can get a hold of a commercial one that will put multiple, multiple pounds of grain in, um, it is effectively the best cereal cooker you can. You just pour a bunch of water in it. And I've got to, I haven't dug my calculations out, but then you're fully gelatinized and then <laughs> Guess what? You don't have to do much anything from that point. Then you just put the brew, brewing enzymes in. There's a there's a protocol that I've got for that that I could dust off, but you know there's not a lot of people who can get access to uh, that size of rice cooker. But you know that's that's another way of doing it. That's a, that's the piece of equipment that I used. Uh, again, that one's not in my garage. It's actually down, um, and I use it quite a bit. But you know. Even when you're doing the, the, the scanner, it just takes care of the gelatinization issue. How big of a rice Craig. cooker is this, Craig? Is it like? Oh, geez. I want to say it's a 40 quart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, uh, well, the benefits of buying your toys is my company gets to buy my toys for me. So, but you can go, they, they have, uh, God, I think there are three, four gallon jobs that you can get for under 150 bucks. So, you know, they're, they're out there. They're both gas and, and uh, you put a, you just pour a whole bunch of water in, you throw in the, the stuff and hit a button and then come back. And it's just like any standard rice cooker. It comes back. It's, it's retained a bunch of water. It's boiled off. Uh, fully gelatinized. Looks like cooked oatmeal when you're done. Oh, and if you do that, do put the two to three percent rice holes in it before you do it. So um, let's see. I had uh, so what? What's the? Um, you have this uh, Bard's brand that seems like it's been going on for a long time. I personally mm-hmm. have never experienced it because I'm in Seattle and um, don't really have access to it. Oh, look at that! I mean, I guess I can just get Peter to ship it to me. Um, okay. <laughs> uh but what's what's the and it and it seems like you have this very very what i would consider unusual uh business model i'm used to like these gluten-free brands having like a uh, brick and mortar brewery and then buying their grains from elsewhere you've kind of got this thing that is completely different which is awesome it's really cool but so what's your what's what's the future hold for bards and for craig ah. So the beautiful thing behind it is, is first of all, I'm going to talk about the the one, one component is we don't have a brick and mortar because 
but the very first time we went, we, we started out this little brewery in, in New York called the Flying Bison Brewing. Um, little 20 barrel system, almost a manual bottling machine. Um, very small. We were going to produce a little bit and put some up in New York. I had a business partner in New York. We went to the, the distributors and said, hey, you know, you want to carry a gluten free beer. What the hell's that? We don't want anything. The hell with it. We don't know anything about gluten free. We turned around and all the people that wanted gluten-free beer that had put their name emails into the website, we sent that out to these guys um, and said, hey, if you want gluten-free beer, take this piece of paper to your store. It'll go up to the distributors. They'll call us and get it. Two weeks later, we're all through New York. Three months, or excuse me, six months later, we're in nine states. Okay. Nobody grows that fast. And we completely and utterly overwhelmed their ability to make that beer. Then we went over to the West Coast out of San Jose, and we brewed beer there for a while. Um, California is really expensive to brew in. I'll just tell you that much. Um, but the whole idea behind it is we kind of focused on the science and the, and the process. And once we found the process, we turned it over to breweries um, to make for us under contract. And we have some people that will do that. So you're right, but from a scalability perspective... Every time we do a jump, we're hitting a wall on production. That's why we, a year ago, we had one brewery. Now we got one in Canada and one in St. Louis. The uh, idea behind us brewing more beer um, may very well be us adding additional breweries throughout the United States that contract make our beer. As long as they follow quality standards and we do all third-party ver verification, we're good. I mean, we test the wart, not not the finished beer for gluten, and we make sure that it's below the limit of qualification. You know, we do all of that. So, again, what's the future hold? This year, I swear to God, I'm getting my second style out. It is a pain to get a second style out. It really is. Um, but... I have been working on it for forever and it's kind of a, well, uh, as soon as I finish the, the, uh, argument with my current CEO, um, as to which one of the ones we're going to do, do we want the black lager? Do we want a Bach that's a light beer, which sounds strange, but it's a 99 calorie Bach and it's delicious. And again, how much fun can I have? So I'm, what I want to do this year very much is get the brewing materials out in everybody's hands so they can start playing with it. So that then we can start talking about ideas on, I, I, I want everybody to talk about what made the greatest beer in the world. Because I think what happens here is with you all going out there and saying, oh my God, I tried this and that. And, you know, I had somebody the other day try a Saison with this stuff. It was horrible. It was, <laughs> it was really horrible. It was, it was, uh, I've had Saison's before. I've had bad ones. This was horrible. And he knows who he is. Um, and uh, it was brewing technique, not, not him. But at the end of the day, I have a feeling that if we can get the brewing, the, the proper brewing um, materials in front of people, I think that there's going to be a lot more discovery and there's going to be advancements in the gluten-free because primarily here, yes, great. I, I, I love making money and running my company, but at the end of the day, I have celiac disease. 
And what I want to do is I want to go to the store and be able to try 15 different types of beer that are worth a darn. Cause there's a lot of gluten-free beers out there right now that have, that have had not had the ability to get the, the correct materials, but they're really, really good uh, uh, breweries. So what can we do with gluten-free brewing in general, if we cross those really good breweries with the really good um, materials? So, you know, for us it, and for Bards here, that's why we call it an open source. Let's get the materials out in the, in the general public, uh, public and, and, and make it. So that's my, my future. I want my second and third style of beers. And I want to get this material out so that we can end up having more than that. Cause I would love to start doing seasonals. My personal goal, my personal goal is to be able to crack a Bards Porter. And I have prototyped it and it's wonderful. When I was telling you that we roast sorghum and you kind of get that peppery taste like a Shiraz wine, it is delicious. But there you go. that we you already you just you just you just spilled the beans, didn't you, right, Craig? <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds awesome. Thank you. Uh, any other? Any, does anyone have any other? Quite we're kind of over time. Anyone have any other last questions? Yeah. Um, um, Craig, early, early on, you mentioned about um, some hops work well with, with the sorghum and some don't. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. That and what kind of yeast are you using? Ah, beautiful. Um, yeast. Mm. We'll start with hops. Saws hops in sorghum for some reason ends up, and I'm going to probably talk about Brian's cat here, and it tastes like cat pee. I'm sorry. It's horrible. <laughs> it's really, 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 um, and I don't know why that is. So hops will react differently. So one of the things from a paradigm perspective, when you do gluten-free, you cannot religiously, the gluten-free brewing that I've done is 90% the same as the barley folks, but there's that 10%. And, and so from a hops perspective, Tetanang, Halatar, um, any of the noble German hops and the German yeasts, and this is not a preference of, well, I do love German style beers, but for some reason, those work way better. They, they bring out the malt attenuation. An American ale yeast, those the dry little pink packets of, uh, I, think, I can't remember what it was. Ale. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's American ale. It, different ones, that brings out a really malt taste, but you end up needing to use a different um, hops with that, maybe like a centennial or something to that effect. Like this one. Yes. So it, it, it hops, hops are everything, but they're going to, they're going to react a little bit different. You'll need to, you know, you need to do it, but again, stay away from saws. <laughs> wow. Sorry. That was not good. Well, definitely knowing what not to do. I mean, in my opinion, in every aspect of life, knowing what not to do is more important than knowing what to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was going to mention real quick that um, I haven't brewed this one yet, but uh, based on the few brews I have done, you could make a light, you know, a light beer or a session beer with five pounds of the sorghum malt. 
that would put, give you five gallons at about 4%. Yeah. That's really good. Nice. And I mean, so that's like, you know, that 20 pound boxing sound, that's four beers. Uh, sorry, the other thing I was going to say, yeasts, um, on the yeast aspect of it. Um, I use the old, is why yeast smack packs and don't smack? I think everybody does that. You know, just pour it in. I've got a, a centrifuge and, and do it that way. Um, Yeast-wise, what did you use on that, Brian? This was US05. That the little pink pack? Sorry, the US is this. Uh, South Hill? Yeah. Yeah. I forget what color it is. It's pink. It's pink. Yeah. Okay. Or red, depending on what you what you see. Yeah. <laughs> I've started using some of the mangrove jack products, and they're good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love using the um, Kvike, and then I mean that brings up a whole new thing because I tried two different strains. One was from the UK, and then one was from Laumann, and the one from the UK dropped crystal clear in like two weeks. And going from Law Mine took forever to go to drop out. Well, um, I will tell you. Then, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll let you go. Okay, I was going to say, I know like some of the uh, pictures I posted earlier show this having um, kind of like a lot of red and haze to it. Mm -hmm. This is the first one. This is with the. It's got two pounds of extract to the five gallon batch. And hopefully you can see how much it's cleared up since then. Nice. Yeah, yeah nice. that's great. And the um, earlier one I uh, was drinking, I mean, it will go very clear and yellow. You just gotta let it sit. Um, and I don't use gelatin or anything like that, so. Uh, one other thing that is universal across gluten-free beers. Um, head retention is not good. I think everybody realizes that. Um, there is a product out there that we have played with using and have had good results with. It's called Tetra Hops Gold. Um, and what it is, it's, a, it's actually a product that will that you can buy like a liter of it <laughs> you you apply it with droppers you can do it post fermentation what you do is you take five ibus out of your recipe throw it away don't don't put the hops in and replace it with five ibus of this tetra hops or tetra hops gold it is meant for light struck beer to protect against it but what it does is gives you an amazing head retention that's what we ended up, those, those little nice peanut butter lacing. So if anything, depending on anywhere you go, if you can ever get your hands on that Tetra Hops gold, um, stuff's wonderful. I've literally, you don't need a, a liter of it would do a probably a 50 barrel uh, batch of beer. So if we can get those guys to start putting it out there in eyedroppers, I literally can turn my beer into an IPA by putting two or three drops in one of my beers. And Another thing for Brian to sell, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. Good job, Brian. 
<laughs> and that's kind of where I'm trying to go with this is, you know, like, I'm not as interested in selling, say, Yakima Valley hops. I want to sell the things that we need that we can't get right now. Um, yeah, yeah. That's cool. It might not be the most profitable business model, but I mean, I'm not in this for the profit. I, I have a job in a hospital. That's how I pay my bills. This is to help spread you know, the good word of gluten-free beer. Um, for the love of beer, man. Right, for the love of beer. There you go. So we're, we're kind of run a little bit over and um, I'm soon to see little children running rampant in my house if I continue <laughs> this any longer. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, so any, anyone else have any last questions and one last quick one, one. Last hopefully okay. it's quick um you guys went from obviously the uh bottles to cans uh, right last little while probably the best thing you ever did because now i can put it in my hockey bag and it doesn't break <laughs> that's exactly why we put it to get in the cans by the way is for lifestyle yeah i wanted to go on a canoe trip yeah fits in my golf bag and my hockey bag so thank you <laughs> uh i was just going to ask as well whereabouts in canada is it brewed is it back east in ontario or New Brunswick Brewery. Oh, really? Wow. So that's a it's a darn good brewery down in that neck of the woods. And uh, where are you located at? Uh, Vancouver. Oh, see. I'll get mine up and going, and I'll brew some for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, thanks, Craig. Uh, thanks, Craig, for joining and taking the time on a Sunday to go over uh, Bards and the sorghum malt and the new sorghum syrup that is going to be at Brian's shop here in the not so different distant future. Um, I will, I will, um, I'll um, post this up on YouTube for everyone to watch. That's not a, that, that couldn't make it. And I'll send you the link to Craig, if you're not a club member and I think we're all good and everyone enjoy the rest of their Sunday. Happy brewing. Thanks everybody. Nice to see y'all. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. All right. Awesome job. Thanks.